0: Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. It's the first week of May 1901 and winter has come early to South Africa. We've heard about the comet that was seen in the night sky with its V-pointed tail, perhaps a portent of the V for viciousness that was characterizing the experience of the mainly Boer women and children and blacks incarcerated in concentration camps across South Africa. As I mentioned last week, at this point social activist Emily Hobhouse was on board a ship heading for England after experiencing these camps and she was to mobilise parts of British society against the war by recounting her stories. She was British first, so when she disembarked later in May, she headed straight to the authorities. Emily Hophouse believed that when they heard her stories about the conditions in the camps and the rising death rate, government ministers would be so embarrassed they would institute changes. As we'll hear at the end of the month and through June, she was sorely mistaken. But she wasn't alone. The attack on the camp system was also taken up by two other MPs called C.P. Scott and John Ellis. It was these two who first used an ominous phrase, concentration camps, taking it from the notorious Reconcentrado camp set up by the Spanish to deal with Cuban guerrillas. As we've heard previously, the use of blockhouses by the Americans in the Cuban War was also going to be perfected by the British in South Africa. It was Ellis who sent his relative Joshua Roundtree to report on the concentration camps. When Roundtree was refused entry into the new colonies of the Transvaal and Free State by Lord Kitchener, his instincts were aroused. British Secretary for War, St. John Broderick, insisted that these camps were voluntary, that the workers, women and children were all there on their own volition. They had arrived on their own free will as prisoners. How many lived in them, asked Ellis in March, and how many had died? It was only at the end of April that the House of Commons first heard the statistics. In the Transvaal, 21,103 were incarcerated. By May, they had heard there were 19,680 prisoners in the now-renamed Orange River Colony and 2,524 in the Natal Colony. It was also becoming apparent that St. John Broderick did not have all the information about what was really happening in these camps. At least, that was the allegation by Ellis and the opposition leader, Lloyd George. He quoted, for example, that many of these refugees are what he called coloured people. Broderick didn't know, and by obscuring the colour of the people suffering, he hoped that would ease the political firestorm which began to blow in England over the death rate of white Boers. As for the death rate in the camps, all he could say was that there had been several hundred fatalities in the early months of the year. Brodrick put forward these figures to the House of Commons, 284 people in the Transvaal died, and 382 in the Free State. These were high, but not outrageously high, as Broderick pointed out. That was for a number of months combined. However, he was off the mark by several thousand. And things were going to get much, much worse. The political back and forth was just that, a political argument amongst politicians, including Roundtree, who had actually not physically seen any of the camps but was presenting reports from third-party sources. This is where Emily Hobhouse was going to blow open the entire story with her first-person reports that were difficult to ignore. I'll spend some time at the end of this month and in one episode upcoming in June when we'll investigate just how her reports reverberated in England. Right now, she was trying to get editors of newspapers to care and many did not. The war in South Africa had turned into a dishonourable guerrilla campaign, and in the eyes of the population, the Boers were generally regarded as backward and thuggish. Hobhouse's main position was that it was bad in summer, but things were moving towards winter in South Africa, and the conditions in the camps were deteriorating. St. John Broderick brushed off criticisms of the camps, repeating often that instead of the terrifying description of concentration camps, there were actually tent villages for refugees, well supplied and with good medical care. At the beginning of May, the Independent reports filtering in by the opposition party in Britain, along with journalists who'd found a way into the camps, contradicted Broderick's description. Broderick then did what other civil servants have always done. He changed his narrative without actually dealing with the crisis. Lord Kitchener developed a brief which Broderick was to use. The camps, while loathsome, were actually a military and moral necessity. Yes, the Boer women and children were beginning to die, but they would be dying in much larger numbers, said Kitchener, if they had been left all alone on the isolated farms in the midst of a guerrilla war, where both sides were predating on these poor defenseless souls. As each report surfaced about how terrible conditions were in April, Kitchener and Broderick countered with the line that, yes, that is true, although exaggerated, but things right now have been fixed. They hadn't. And of course, through censorship and managing access to camps, the real conditions were still a matter largely of conjecture. At least, that was Kitchener's line and Brodrick stuck to the same story. The British military strategy, of course, at this stage, was scorched earth, burning all farms and forcing the Boers off the battlefield through starvation. It made sense, then, that all civilians should be placed in camps. After all, they were running out of food. British army reporters were describing how things were improving in the camps as their tinned food arrived and the water was being boiled in special drums. How the women and children now received clothing parcels. But that was a lie. Emily Hobhouse's first-person account of what things were really like began to emerge and British people began to take notice. Remember, she visited Bloemfontein in January 1901 and was given access to the camps by local commanders because she had brought clothes and other goods from Cape Town for the refugees. When she arrived in the Bloemfontein camp in January, there were 1,800 civilians living in harsh conditions. At first, Her writing was supportive of the British, and she took care not to offend the camp commander, Major General Prettyman. Although the camp was pretty well run, he was a military commander, and his understanding of how dangerous it was to expose children in particular to harsh conditions was, let us say, underdeveloped. When Hobhouse left Cape Town, she had imagined that she would be handing out her 12 tons of little shoes and socks to refugees that were well housed and attended. She was wrong and said so. The shelter was totally insufficient, she wrote. When eight, ten, or twelve persons who occupied a ball tent were all packed into it, either to escape the fierceness of the sun or dust or rainstorms, there was no room to move, and the atmosphere was indescribable. There was no soap, and the water which Broderick had boasted about was insufficient. There wasn't enough to go around. And this was the rainy season. She began to understand what could happen in midwinter, when the waterholes and rivers dried up and the freezing winds blew. There was no fuel for fires. The women and children had no bedding and slept on the ground. There was not enough food. Starvation had begun in the camps, and somehow the British public had no inkling of just how terrible things were. Later, at the end of the war, British army veterans would speak bitterly about how their war against the Boers had turned from a righteous campaign into a conflict that was deeply embarrassing and it was in this phase that the perceptions would change most irrevocably. Hobhouse had managed to convince the Bumfontein camp commander to improve water by building brick boilers, but they had refused point-blank to build piped water systems, saying there was no money. The camp latrines were merely buckets placed outside the tents, and when the unemptied containers sat for hours in the sun, people could not stand being downwind. In dealing with the soldiers, the masters of this man's world, as Hobhouse said, she tried to keep a civil tongue and a stiff upper lip. But her letters home are revealing. The authorities are at their wits' end and have no more idea how to cope with the difficulty of providing clothes for the people than the man in the moon. Crass male ignorance, stupidity, helplessness and muddling, she wrote. I rub as much salt into the sore places of their minds as I possibly can, because it is good for them. But I can't help melting a little when they are very humble and confess that the whole thing is a grievous mistake and a gigantic blunder. This blunder was still a long way from being recognized as such by the war office. After all, Lord Kitchener was behind this, the master of the Sudan, a soldier soldier who rarely made mistakes, a hero. Hobhouse then decided she would check on as many of the camps as she could. There were now hundreds, so this was going to be difficult. The Boers continued to attack trains and made movement impossible. The British were trying to stop her from her mission. Yet, she managed to see about half of the camps administered by the Orange River officials. These included Norval's Point, Ullwell North, Springfontein, Kimberley, and Orange River Camp. She also saw one administered by the Transvaal, in Mafeking, Her conclusion was that all the camps in varied degrees suffered from the same defects she saw in Bloemfontein. While she moved about the camps, Lord Kitchener was, as we know, beginning with his drives and the numbers of refugees suddenly accelerated. Open trucks full of women and children exposed to rain and sun without adequate food and water began to chug across the felt. Sometimes they would be left on board the railway trucks for days while the camps were being prepared. That shocked Hobhouse even more than the camps themselves. They looked like animals herded onto open-topped carriages. In fact, they were being ferried around in carriages that were designed for animals. It wasn't the stated or even secret strategy by the British to commit murder in the way the Nazis did in Europe 40 years later. It was a haphazard and careless Culpable homicide. The sight of these refugees shocked Hobhouse, and when the photographs emerged, would shock the British. In the railway sidings, what you could see was war and varnished. Truckloads of frightened animals, bellowing and baying for food and drink, tangled up with wagons and a dense crowd of human beings. Here was war in all its destructiveness, cruelty, stupidity, and nakedness. She wrote. On her return in April 1901, for a second look at Bloemfontein, she found that there had been some improvements in water supply, but the pure weight of numbers of refugees meant these were swamped. She realised that Kitchener's drives and the numbers of people flooding into these camps on the cusp of winter was a bad omen. This sudden influx of hundreds and thousands has upset everything and reduced us all to a state bordering on despair, she wrote. In fact, the numbers at the camps had actually doubled since her last visit and would double again in a few weeks. There was only one doctor per camp and these doctors began to get sick themselves, contracting typhoid and enteric fever. It was becoming a crisis and yet it was only early May. Two of the Boer girls we have trained as nurses and who were doing good work are dead too, writes Hobhouse. It would slowly dawn, on Emily Hobhouse and other officials that the biggest crisis in the camps was not the cold, the lack of water, the poor housing, the ablutions. It was the death rate. Hobhouse realised in late April, before heading to Cape Town to take a ship to England to report what she'd found, that the fatality rate was a crisis. I began to compare a parish I had known at home with 2,000 people where a funeral was an event and usually of an old person. Here, some twenty to twenty-five were carried away daily. The full realisation of the position dawned on me. It was a death rate such as had never been known before, except at the times of the great plagues. That frightening observation was really what led her directly to the British political class, a clash which was coming in late May 1901. As she watched these funerals, she wrote, The whole talk was of death, who died yesterday, who lay dying today, who would be dead tomorrow. So by April she'd had enough. The soldiers who had spoken honestly about the situation were correct. The whole system had been a gigantic lethal blunder. She must return to England as soon as possible to present the facts to the British people. On the other side of this moment were the British military commanders and their Boer counterparts, the men of the war the men who wanted to continue killing each other and who believed in their mission, their God, and the African felt. But it was their combined actions that led to this situation. General Christian de Vet, Coeur de la Lord Kitchener, Johnny Hamilton, Lord Methuen. The Empire and its gold-loving investors, and the burghers and their refusal to accept an inevitable political reality. The soldiers on both sides caught up now in a growing civilian catastrophe, which had turned into a hurricane of bitterness. Emily Hobhouse began to compose her 15-page report to the House of Commons, which was to be circulated in June after her return to England. It would reverberate through the island like a bomb. The dividing line between competence and non-competence is always a source of feverish debate in wartime. In 1901, the definition of a combatant was someone who carried a rifle and fired at you. The nature of guerrilla war changes this significantly. It is the peasant who provides the troops with sustenance, the elderly who allow soldiers to use their barns as resting places, the little old ladies who feed the commander's horses. So you can understand the British military view that the Boer women and children were not merely spectators sitting in their homes, but active participants and therefore requiring of imprisonment. At least, that was the view of Lord Kitchener and his officers. We've heard how many British soldiers and their leaders in the field in South Africa were far less convinced of this approach. Meanwhile, in the Transvaal, the Boer leaders had decided to meet again and on the 10th of May 1901 held a military council on a farm called De Emigrati near Ermelo in the eastern Transvaal. Besides Berger, the Retz, the Secretary, and Louis Wouter, it was also attended by Generals Smuts. Ben Folun and Chris Boerter. They reached a unanimous decision. It was to approach General Kitchener to request permission to send their emissaries back and forth in order to discuss a ceasefire with their people. These Boers were not sure about what President Kruger would say about their plan. Messaging had become difficult, and so they wanted to reach out to him first with the idea. That proposal had far-reaching implications, considering what was going to happen in the concentration camps through winter 1901. Of course, they had no idea about this when the Transvaal leadership sent a note to the Orange Free State Boer President Stain, listing the five reasons to support a ceasefire. The first two were about the loss of men and material. Burgers were defecting in droves and soon there would be none left. The weapons were virtually depleted. The remaining three reasons were to do with morale. The Boer government was losing its authority. The leaders and their personal influence and the people, the folk, were losing their trust. Therefore they couldn't allow things to continue as they were. It was time to take decisive measures. Surprisingly President Steyn agreed with the five reasons but drew a different conclusion. He had been confronted by the Transvaal indecisiveness before including just before Pretoria fell on June the 1st the previous year. He flew into a rage and on May 15th sent two letters in reply. First was an official letter to the government of the Transvaal through Secretary Rates. The second was a personal letter to Jan Smuts where he vented his anger. Yes, he said, there were shortages of everything, including men, but give up the struggle just because the Transvaalers said so? Never. If the Transvaalers were to desert the Free Staters now, it would be the end of the Afrikaner nation. And in his letter, Steyn repeats, what would be the rallying call for Afrikaners through the era of apartheid. We must demonstrate that now through our perseverance and strength to fight and suffer. But Steyn's outburst was not enough to sway the Transvaalers, who stubbornly persisted in their plan to contact Kruger in Europe. And so they sent a note to Lord Kitchener, asking for permission to allow their emissaries to travel back and forth to Europe. As we'll hear, Kitchener consented to this request. So we'll call a halt now to the peace moves and pick up what happens next week and in the coming podcasts. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the profile of the story. And you can direct message me through Twitter at Des Latham. Thanks to all of those who sent me messages of support this week. Please keep the suggestions coming in. Until next week, goodbye. En zonder gedal langs die mooie, reviefste vaal, het zij voor oorlogsdagen blij. O, breng mij terug naar die ootransvaal, daar waar Messari woont, daar onder in die mil is bij die...